Hello, and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast, where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy here at the IISS, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we're very much looking forward to welcoming Professor Fukushima Akiko to discuss Japan, its G7 presidency, and its approaches to multilateralism. Dr. Fukushima Akiko is a senior fellow at the Tokyo Foundation for Policy Research and earned her doctoral degree from Osaka University and her MA from SAIS at Johns Hopkins University. She has taught at the School of Global Studies and Collaboration at Aoyama Gakuin University and served as Director of Policy Studies at the National Institute for Research Advancement. Concurrently, Dr. Fukushima is a member of the International Advisory Board of the Hague Journal of Diplomacy and non-resident fellow of the Lowy Institute. She also has served on several Japanese government committees, including the Prime Minister's Advisory Panel on National Security and Defence Capabilities. Akiko, thank you very much for your time today, and welcome to Japan Memo. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity. Good to have you on the show. Just to kick us off, we're thinking about Japan and multilateralism. I think it's important to give our listeners some context on the history of Japan and multilateralism. What do you think has been the importance of multilateralism and multilateral institutions to Japan's national interests since the end of the Second World War? Let me make two points. First, Japan after the Second World War aspired to be recognized as a legitimate citizen of international community. A membership in the United Nations was perceived as a vehicle for Japan's readmission into the international community shortly after the signing of the San Francisco Peace Treaty in 1951, which restored Japan's independence after World War II. Japan applied for UN membership. Then Foreign Minister Okazaki Katsuo wrote an application letter to the UN Secretary General Lee on June 16, 1952, that the government of Japan accepts the obligation contained in the UN Charter and undertakes to honor them by all means at its disposal. The Soviet veto prevented Japan's accession until 1956, though. After its accession, Japan has faithfully played its role as a UN member, which is reflected in the resolve of Prime Minister Kishi Nobusuke to place the UN in the center of Japanese foreign policy. Second, Japan's emphasis on the UN is due to the vacuum of regional multilateral institutions in the Asia Pacific until the end of the Cold War, that is, Unlike Europe, Japan did not have NATO nor European community like institutions to align with. So, how do you think that Japan's engagement with multilateral frameworks has developed over the past decades? You make an interesting point there, of course, about how Asia after the Second World War didn't have these multilateral frameworks. So, Japan was sort of operating as quite a unique actor for the region. But, but how do you think this engagement over the years has developed with Japan? During the Cold War, although the Asia Pacific lacked intergovernmental institution, Track 1.5 Regional Economic Cooperation Dialogue was launched. Also, there emerged a sub regional institution which Japan has developed its cooperation. 
As for the former non-intergovernmental institution, in 1980, Japan took the initiative with Australia to launch the Pacific Economic Cooperation Council, PECC, which was a tripartite forum of government officials in the private capacity, industry, and academia. It has been more of a dialogue process rather than an institution, but Japan was active there. During the Cold War, Southeast Asian countries organized the sub-regional institution Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, in 1967. You must be familiar with ASEAN, which is very active now. Japan started its dialogue with ASEAN in 1973. In fact, Japan commemorates the 50th anniversary of its relations with ASEAN this year. I would also like to recall the Fukuda Doctrine of Heart-to-Heart Relations with ASEAN, launched in 1977, which has been the foundation of Japan's relations with ASEAN. On its part, ASEAN decided to have dialogues with external partners in the form of ASEAN Post-Ministerial Conference or ASEAN PMC since 1976. Japan was one of the first groups to be invited to ASEAN PMC along with Australia and New Zealand. Turning to the post-Cold War era, the Asia-Pacific created multilateral cooperation intergovernmental first with the launch of Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, APEC, coincidentally on the same day that the Berlin Wall crumbled down in November 1989. Initially at the level of ministerial and later at the summit level since 1993. Japan took the initiative in launching APEC process, but led from behind and asked Australia to stand on the front line. APEC membership is truly Asia-Pacific, including Oceania, Asia, North and South Americas. Meanwhile, China was not a member of APEC initially, but was invited and joined in 1991 as China, Hong Kong China, and Chinese Taipei. Then came the launches of ASEAN-centered initiatives, capitalizing on ASEAN dialogue processes. Japan has been active in the post-Cold War regional architectures in the Asia-Pacific or East Asia, although Japan was perceived as leading from behind or reactive in some corners. Late Prime Minister Abe Shinzo changed the perception of Japan's role in multilateralism. I don't know whether you agree with me, Robert, or not. In my perception, he made much of Japan's relations with ASEAN and its members as demonstrated by his visits to capitals of ASEAN members, which tradition has been maintained by his successors, Prime Minister Suga and Prime Minister Kishida. Prime Minister Abe has taken proactive leadership in his foreign policy, as reflected in the 2013 National Security Strategy NSS. He said Japan will make proactive contribution to peace as a strategy, which is also maintained in the 2022 NSS. I would like to note that Japan was criticized as being reactive in its foreign policy, lacking strategy in earlier decades. Prime Minister Abe changed the perception, in my view, 
He took proactive initiatives on multilateralism, such as free and open Indo-Pacific, and was anxious promoter of minilateralism, such as Quad, Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, and was anxious promoter of CPTPP, Comprehensive Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, which should be very familiar to you, Robert, to just name a few. I would like to note that FOIP is the first foreign policy initiative that Japan took and successfully put together like-minded countries who share interests and concerns within and beyond the region on board. The reasons are various but are common on the growing importance of their trade with Indo-Pacific as well as shared concerns on fraying regional and international order. Your juxtaposition, Akio, of Abe's proactive contribution to peace and the sort of activism of recent years and the APEC, I think you said Japan was leading from behind, putting sort of Australia out there in, in the front. I think it's a good reminder of just how much has changed in Japan over the last few years. And I wasn't aware of the fact that APEC was launched on the same day that Berlin Wall <laughs> fell as well. So quite a lot of symbolism in there. Bringing us up to date, as, as you were in your comments just now, 2023 is a is a big year for Japan and multilateralism. We've got the G7 summit coming in a couple of weeks, middle of May. Japan starts a two-year stint as a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council as well. There's a lot on the agenda for Japan in terms of using how it deploys its influence in multilateral institutions. If we focus on the G7 to start with, could you explain to us the significance of this year's Hiroshima G7 for global rules-making and the maintenance of what Japan and others are calling the rules-based liberal international order? Japan has been a member of G7 from the very beginning in 1975 with G6. Since Japan is not a prominent member of the UN Security Council, G7 has been a valuable multilateral venue for Japan. Japan, as the only representative from Asia, has exercised its leadership and has represented the voice of Asia. At least we have tried to represent the voice of Asia, should I say. In my view, although G7 lost steam when it was G8, with the creation of G20 right after the Lehman shock, G7 has regained its weight as a venue after 2014 when Russia left the group due to its annexation of Crimea. In my view, since 2022, G7 has gained further importance with the Russian war of aggression to Ukraine as a venue to solidify cooperation among leading powers. G7 has turned out to be an ever more important venue when the UN Security Council cannot function due to the veto power of the permanent five, Russia in this instance. Japan, in presiding G7 this year and in hosting G7 summit in Hiroshima, it aims to make further concrete contribution to peace, security, and prosperity among the G7 and beyond, including the global South. I would like to add that Japan's presidency of G7 does not end in May, but continues until the end of 2023. I trust Japan will lead G7 efforts and beyond on pressing issues, emerging challenges. If I may add, in promoting multilateralism, Japan needs to work with G7 members in solidarity. Multilateralism today 
demands solidarity among like-minded or similar-minded members, as was argued in the 2022 UNDP Special Report on Human Security, New Threats to Human Security in Anthropocene, demanding greater solidarity. Prime Minister Kishida has been travelling very intensely in the run-up to the Hiroshima summit, and obviously there's been a lot of activity from the start of the year and will continue after the Hiroshima summit to sort of reflect the interest that Japan has in delivering concrete achievements from this summit. What do you think Prime Minister Kishida wants in concrete terms from Japan's presidency of the G7 this year? In my view, there are a couple of things he wants to achieve. One I would like to give is rules-based order or free and open rules-based order, which I believe is the key as we stand at the historical inflection point. If we do not share rules-based order, it is rather difficult to face all the threats and challenges we face. I really mean it. If we have parallel or multiple international orders, it doesn't work. It is as if baseball players and softball players are playing together, if not cricket players. Baseball and softball look alike, but their rules are not the same. Therefore, they cannot play together. If we are to live in plural number of orders in a global governance, it would be very chaotic. I feel very strongly about this. And also, as Prime Minister Kishida has just visited Africa, and he is on his way back to Tokyo through Singapore, where he is meeting Asian colleagues, I think he is going to make much of our cooperation with the so-called the Global South. I'm not sure whether we should call them as the Global South, as if it is a one entity. Each one of the countries in the Global South have different interests, different needs, and different line of thoughts. So we have to tailor our cooperation with them according to the needs. But the relations with Global South, as we invite some of them in the outreach uh, session of the G7, that would be important. And also global economy is, of course, the important topic of G7. I place particular emphasis on energy and food security. I regard economic resilience and economic security as a very important topic to be covered and discussed. There are other topics to be discussed, of course. We have to discuss how we can support Ukraine, who is involved in the Russian war of aggression. We have to make sure that we support Ukraine. Although there are other issues that needs attention, I would like to give disarmament and non-proliferation as an important topic, as the venue of the G7 this time is Hiroshima. Although it is a very difficult time to discuss nuclear non-proliferation when some are using nuclear as a geopolitical leverage or expanding their influence, I think it is vitally important for us to look at disarmament and non-proliferation in Hiroshima setting. I underscore the importance of education on non-proliferation and disarmament in Hiroshima. There must be other issues that should be covered, but those come to my mind right now. 
your point on parallel and multiple rules-based orders not working, I think, is spot on. Perhaps this is what China may be aiming for ultimately, but the need for free and open rules-based order, I think, is the point you made is well made. On nuclear disarmament, there's a lot of symbolism in, in holding the G7 summit in Hiroshima, and Japan speaks with a unique voice in terms of its own experience. What do you think are the real prospects for progress here, given Japan's uniqueness in its experience and that there are quite a few other nuclear powers within the G7? What sort of progress do you think the Prime Minister can really realistically hope for on disarmament and non-proliferation? This is a very difficult time to discuss non-proliferation and disarmament of nuclear weapons. However, it doesn't mean that we can let things go. Japan and G7 members should show their commitment on maintaining and strengthening disarmament and non-proliferation. And Hiroshima is a most fitted venue for G7 leaders to renew their commitment on nuclear weapons. Japan has proposed Hiroshima Action Plan embodying a pragmatic approach given the current harsh security environment. Japan will underscore the importance of disarmament and non-proliferation education while encouraging other leaders, youth and others to visit Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Secondly, Japan promotes a world without nuclear weapons. Prime Minister Kishida has created international group of eminent persons for a world without nuclear weapons, or IGEP, Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, TPNW, was signed. However, nuclear weapon states have not signed the treaty. I think Japan endeavors to bridge TPNW and NPT for nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament at a time when some countries are building up their nuclear arsenals and delivery vehicles. Prime Minister Kishida will introduce his thoughts on this issue and also introduces discussions made at International Group of Eminent Persons for the World Without Nuclear Weapons. They are working on their recommendations to next NPT review conference. Moving away from the G7 to the UN Security Council, which I said earlier, Japan joins as non-permanent member in 2023-2024. Japan joins at a time of dysfunction in the UN Security Council, related obviously largely to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Again, within this very difficult environment, where do you think Japan can make a contribution with its presence in the UNSC? First, Japan, as a non-permanent member of UN Security Council, hosted open debate on the rule of law in January this year. Japan is committed to work for enhancing international peace and security as a non-permanent member of the UNSC in 2023-24. In January 2023, Japan, as the presidency of the Security Council, hosted open debate on the rule of law. Foreign Minister Hayashi said that if agreements are not observed in good faith, the rule of law does not exist and the world would become a jungle of brute force and coercion. I would like to underscore this point for Japan to work on Foreign Minister Hayashi quoted, the permanent representative of Kenya who once said at the Security Council that multilateralism lies on its deathbed. As he said, we should not 
let multilateralism die. Certainly, multilateralism is in peril. The UN is in peril. That is the reason why we should stand up to enhance it. And I think this is exactly the thing that Japan would work on for its term of office as a non permanent member this time. I perceive that the UN is in peril. And I think it is necessary for us to reform UN so that it can respond to the current situations. The UN Security Council has to be expanded to make it more representative of the membership. However, it requires revision of the UN Charter, which is hard. I believe you need a two thirds majority vote plus the consensus of permanent five to revise the UN Charter. I certainly hope the permanent seats will be expanded in future and there will be one for Japan. In the interim, however, we should strive to enhance UN functions, in particular functions of the General Assembly. Last year, it was Liechtenstein who took the initiative to uh, adopt a resolution at the General Assembly to hold permanent five accountable for their use of veto. I thought it was a good move, and I would like to see the General Assembly function more. And if there is a way for us to enhance the functioning of General Assembly, that would be plus for the United Nations. Secondly, I would like to see a stronger role or function of the Secretary General so that he or she can act sooner or later in case of contingencies or challenges. When Agenda for Peace was announced at the United Nations, we talked about peacekeeping and peace building, didn't we? The circumstances we are in is different. We need peacemaking functions. If we can enhance the capacity and functioning of the Secretary General for peacemaking, that would be also plus for the UN, which is having a hard time working with this Russian war of aggression to Ukraine. In the news today, NATO is likely to open a liaison office in Japan. It's the first such office in Asia for NATO. Prime Minister Kishido went to the Madrid summit last year. Relations with NATO are obviously important to him. What's your perspective on how Japan's deepening its relations with NATO? And what do you think this might mean for the Indo-Pacific more broadly? Japan has been cooperating with NATO since 2001 when we dispatched fuel support operation on Indian Ocean for ISAF. And Japan has also dispatched our SDF to the Gulf of Aden to work on control of pirates there in parallel with NATO and EU. So we have been working together with NATO already. Russian war of aggression has brought Euro-Atlantic and Indo-Pacific recognized indivisibility in order term or interconnectivity in current expression between the two. There is a growing awareness between us that we will benefit by working together. We have discussed our partnership last year And I recall that uh, Prime Minister Kishida at Shangri-La Dialogue last year, which I live streamed, said Ukraine today may be 
East Asia tomorrow. That sense is shared by many of the countries in NATO as well as in the Indo-Pacific. So there are willingness on our part from the Indo-Pacific to weave further partnership with NATO. Therefore, I look forward to the Villeneuve summit of NATO in Lithuania in July. The key is what and how we are going to work together. That's the key. I think we are discussing how we can cooperate together, and it means a lot to Indo-Pacific. Yes, the Prime Minister's explicit linking of the European and Asian security theatres at the 2022 Shangri-La Dialogue, where he gave the keynote, as you said, was a really important bit of strategic insight there. And I think rightly so, he's linking, given all the similar concerns about what could go on in Asia as well. In terms of Japan's engagement with multilateral institutions that it's not member of itself, for example, I think you mentioned at the beginning, Akiko, Japan's engagement with ASEAN. On the one hand, as we've been talking, Japan's been very keen on big multilateral institutions and seen them as an important conduit for exerting influence. But recently, Japan's also been a sort of keen sponsor of minilateral, sort of smaller groupings. CPTPP, big policy success of the second Abe administration, of course. The Quad, morphing from sort of defensive security focus to some more geoeconomics and other various groups. Do you see that there's a sort of tension between focusing on the smaller groupings, which seem a little bit perhaps antithetical to big multilateral groups? Or do you think Japan can maintain both of these at the same time? I would argue for the latter. In the Indo-Pacific, I think Japan ought to weave its bilateral, minilateral, trilateral, quadrilateral, and multilateral cooperation with like-minded countries in the region and beyond for multilateral cooperation. While multilateralism in Asia was once dubbed as a spaghetti bowl or oriental noodle soup, what we need today is a lasagna-like multilayered cooperation ranging from bilateral, minilateral to multilateralism. And I do not see it as a chaos, rather it is a strength that we should take advantage of. A nice image there from spaghetti to lasagna. (laughs) I like that image. You mentioned ASEAN at the beginning. Perhaps an interesting example of how Japan has engaged with a multilateral organization to which it is not actually a member. And we've talked about Japan's engagement of the so-called Global South as an important focus of the G7. Has Japan been successful in engaging with multilateral organizations of which it is not a member? And how do you think it can use this going forward to engage more closely with the so-called Global South? With ASEAN, we have a history of 50 years weaving relations with each member of the ASEAN, as well as ASEAN as an institution. By building our relations at a political level, economic level, including business, as well as at the society level, I think we have built trust, mutual trust between us. And that has helped us working in other multilateral institutions like WTO or United Nations or other institutions and arrangements with Global South. 
as I said, I have some hesitation in using this term as if it is a group. Japan has made much of its relations with developing countries through its ODA assistance, official development assistance, listening to the needs and working together with them, working on human resources development as well as infrastructure. And this, how should I put it, accumulated relationship with each country have helped us to work with, for instance, African Union. As uh, Robert may recall, we have a conference called the TCAT, which is a conference to discuss our relations with African countries and discuss how we move forward. We have coined quality infrastructure development with African colleagues in one of the TCAT meetings. These are the efforts Japan has made developing our mutual trust and trying to represent their voice at different uh, fora, as well as trying to listen to their voices. And this is something of an asset, in my view, in our foreign policy making. And I hope Japan can capitalize on these efforts we have made. We tend to focus on security, and security is very important. It has to come as a triangle of diplomacy, defense, and development, in my view. Yes, it's good that you mentioned African Union and TCAD. TCAD 2016, Abe chose Kenya as a venue to announce FOIP. So Africa, very important in terms of foreign policy for Japan. And good, obviously, again, to see the Prime Minister Kishida now doing on a multi-country tour of Africa. This leads us to our Japan memo questions, which we ask all our esteemed guests on this podcast series. The first question, Akiko, is whether you have a book recommendation for listeners who wish to understand Japan, and you are allowed to recommend your own writings if you so choose. If you are interested in multilateralism, I have written a chapter titled A New Logic of Multilateralism on Demand in the Palgrave Handbook of Diplomatic Reform and Innovation published by Palgrave Macmillan earlier this year. If you are interested in Japan's relations with Southeast Asia in the Indo-Pacific era, I recommend the Courteous Power, edited by Joe and uh, Tsutsui, published by University of Michigan Press in 2021. If you are interested in Japan's history, I recommend Stranger in Shogun's City, A Japanese Woman and Her World by Amy Stanley, published by Scribner in 2021. Thank you. Quite a range of, of subjects there, Akiko, but thank you very much. Second Japan memo question is, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? People tend to paint Japan as if it is monolithic. Certainly not. Japan has been misunderstood because Japan has not been very good at explaining ourselves. This has been rectified for the past decade or two, thanks to the efforts by WIWS and other think tanks introducing and analyzing new changes taking place in Japan, including the new national security strategy last December. In addition, Japan itself is making efforts to explain ourselves. For example, the Tokyo Foundation for Policy Research runs Read Japan Project, the details of which you can find at www.readjapan.org. I have found interesting readings from the list 
when you are looking for books on Japan, you may find the list on the website useful. Your university libraries may have some of those books available as we donate them to some libraries worldwide. Thank you, Akio, and thank you for a conversation of great range and depth, actually, in terms of historic perspective as well on a really very important subject of Japan and multilateralism, not least, of course, because we've got the G7 presidency this year, Japan has. So thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners as well for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, we urge you to subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. And for more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Programme on our website, which is www.iiss.org. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are active sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find me at Robert Allen Ward. Our guest, Akiko, is not on Twitter, but I encourage you to follow her affiliation at Tokyo Foundation. Thank you again and see you next time. Bye.